Well, we've had two or three cracking days, haven't we? Life is absolutely amazing on days like we've had. It's a beautiful thing to see the blue sky, the sun shining. Uh, I went out on my bike for a long cycle on a Friday and headed out towards Pennycook and past the field. See these lambs running around. And, and life is so beautiful, it's so great. But as I cycled around and I drove through areas of shadow, it was amazing how quickly I sort of felt chilled and cold. And, and that is really what life is like, isn't it? Uh, it is so great and so amazing, and yet every now and again we feel uh, the chilling winds of the reality of death. Uh, this shadow that, 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 that blocks and obscures the reality of the fullness of joy out there. And in recent weeks we've had... Uh, a series of um, more high-profile deaths. Uh, we've heard of the death of Peaches Geldof, uh, the 25-year-old daughter of the musician and campaigner, uh, Bob Geldof. And the post-mortem has uh, not revealed the causes of this non-suspicious but unexplained sudden death. Last Sunday, during the London Marathon, Robert Berry, at the age of 42, uh, collapsed on the finish line and died. Margot MacDonald... The MSP died at the age of 70, having battled with Parkinson's disease. And on Thursday, there was the funeral of this uh, girl, Keen Wallace Bennett, the 12-year-old girl who died after a wall fell on, on her at Liberton High School in this city. These are all tragic events, young and old, healthy and sick, male and female. Death is the enemy that makes its chill felt on all of life. Death gets us in the end. And even though we know death is inevitable, when it strikes someone that we love, it leaves us absolutely reeling and devastated. So how are we to deal with death? How are we to live in the shadow, this chilling shadow of death? What hope is there? Well, I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and if you don't have a Bible with you, hopefully there's a church Bible somewhere around, and you can find this passage on page 1156, if you've got a, a red Bible near you, page 1156, it's going to read from verse 20 to 28. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. 
Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. This is God's word. Now keep this open because we're going to examine this in the, in the brief time remaining. Paul is writing to Christians in the city of Corinth in AD 54. And what, what is his main concern as he writes this chapter? Well, it, it's simply this. He wants to remind them of how absolutely central the resurrection of Jesus Christ is uh, for the Christian faith. That's what this whole chapter of his letter is about. Now, we read the eyewitness account a little bit earlier in the service of his resurrection, that first Easter Sunday. But here's the point. What is the significance of of these events. Well, I believe that's what we have in these eight verses beginning from verse 20. Paul wanted the Christians that he's writing to not merely to know the certainty of the resurrection, but he wanted them to know the significance of the resurrection. And so there are three life-changing truths that I want us to examine this morning, uh, all because he is raised from the dead. Firstly, he is risen as first fruits. As first fruits. Now, since the Enlightenment, uh, man has tried to answer the big questions such as uh, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? He's tried to answer those questions without any reference to God. And so, ruling out God, you have a fairly bleak answer from the Enlightenment. Here it is it's pretty despairing. You are the accidental byproduct of nature, a result of matter plus time plus chance. There is no reason for your existence, and all you face is death. That's what the Enlightenment tells us. And let's be clear as we come to God's Word that if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, then Christians are the biggest losers in the history of the world. That's exactly what the Apostle says in the verses before. Look back at verse uh, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Waste of space, empty. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Do you see that there's no uncertainty in Paul's mind? The facts were clear. Christ had been raised from the dead. And this is potentially massive in its significance. He, he starts explaining this with the imagery of first fruits. The Jewish tradition, the God-given tradition, was that the sheaf of the first harvested grain was to be brought to the Jewish temple. And the priest would hold it up and wave it before the Lord. And this waving of the first fruits was to, as it were, consecrate the whole harvest that was about to be brought in. The first fruits were kind of the, the promise, the guarantee of the full harvest uh, that soon was going to be enjoyed by all the people. And fascinatingly, this would happen the day after the Sabbath. It would happen on a Sunday. Well, on that first Easter Sunday, when Jesus Christ walked 
out of the tomb, his resurrection from the dead signaled a greater harvest of resurrected people that would surely follow after him. His resurrection from the dead is then the promise, the guarantee of the resurrection of all those who belong to him. And so because he is risen, this overcomes despair in the chilling shadow of death. And look again at verse 20 to see how Paul describes death for the Christian believer. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Do you see what death has now become for the believer? Merely falling asleep. Mark's gospel records of how Jesus turned up to the home of a grieving family. Their little 12-year-old girl had died and the professional mourners were there and Jesus comes uh, to their house and he tells the mourners to stop crying. He says, stop crying, she's only asleep. And they laughed in a derisory way at him because they knew that she was dead. But for Jesus, uh, her death was just like sleep. And the disciples who witnessed these events will never forget it. In fact, they'll never forget the word that Jesus used as he took her hand. Talitha cum. He uses the Aramaic. He, he writes the Aramaic in, in Mark's gospel. And then he tells us what it means. Little girl, get up. And to their stunned amazement, the little girl got up, made alive again. Do you see the point? Uh, for Jesus, uh, waking the dead is as easy as it is for us to wake those who are sleeping. But the future resurrection is actually going to be better than that event. For those who belong to Christ, uh, when they are raised, they won't be raised in the body that they died with. They will be raised in that body, but a transformed and glorified resurrected body. A body just like Jesus. Just as his resurrection body was the first fruits, their bodies will be just the same following behind fitted for the new creation that is to come. And that's why, of course, Christians describe the place where we bury bodies, cemeteries. If you look up in a good dictionary what the word cemetery mean, means, it means this, a dormitory, a place of sleep. That is a profoundly Christian understanding. And so it is Christ's resurrection that overcomes our despair in the face of death. A friend of mine from theological college uh, when I studied in, in Australia, uh, Dave Andrews, was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And I'll never forget um, him telling me that as he was being wheeled into the pre-op area, strapped down to sort of the medical gurney as he was being wheeled in to see the anesthetist, the only thing that was going through his head were, were the words that we have in this very same chapter in verse 4, and on the third day he rose again. That was what gave him courage and hope and confidence as he faced the huge uncertainty of a brain operation. And after the brain tumor was removed, he had another nine months to live before he was diagnosed with a recurrence of his brain cancer. And a friend of mine went to visit him and tells me that how, how David was just joyfully handing out this book by John Chapman uh, the evangelist explaining the Christian faith. He was handing out to the nurses and the doctors and cheerfully saying, hey, you've got to come to my funeral. You'll get to hear this guy speak. 
Now, why could he be so joyful? Well, because Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that includes David. Will it include you? The second significance of the resurrection he has risen to reverse Adam's ruin. This resurrection of Jesus is not simply an event in history. It is the start of a brand new history, of a brand new creation. God is starting a brand new humanity. Look at verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Now I think this is a very strange way of thinking for us. And so we need to take the time to understand the significant place that God has given to man in creation. So I want you to keep your finger in 1 Corinthians and go back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Should be on page 1 of your book, Genesis chapter 1. And look at the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before there was anything created, there was God. And God created a perfect world. And into that perfect world, he created man, male and female. You see, we are not the accidental byproduct of nature, simply a result of matter plus time plus chance. We are created by God, and there is meaning and purpose to our lives. And the purpose of man was to rule over this world that God had created. He was a steward of God. He was his vice regent in charge. Have a look at uh, verse 26 across the page. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over every living creature that moves on the ground. So Adam and Eve are placed in this beautiful garden where they had a harmonious relationship with God, with each other, with creation. And they were to rule over God's world. They were to be fruitful gardeners who produced lots more gardeners to expand this garden of paradise to the whole earth. And at the center of this garden, you can read in chapter 2, is the, is the tree of life. So they had the possibility of living an immortal life. And the only condition for them was to obey the command that God had given them not to eat the fruit of one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God warned them, the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die, he says. Death had not been their experience, 
it wasn't going to be their experience if they merely obeyed God's command. And so this is mankind's purpose, mankind's privilege to extend God's blessings in the world and to enjoy relating to God in the world. A world where God was all in all, everything to everyone. Do you see that the state of the world is actually dependent and tied to the rule and obedience of the first Adam? That's the thing to spot here. The intimate link that God has given us. The rule of man depends on the state of the world. King David wrote a psalm, Psalm 8, where he sang uh, this song of praise to God, just reflecting on this incredible, unique position that God had given man. He says this in Psalm 8, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. This is the unique place of man in the world. And yet, if God created such a perfect world, how come our world is so messed up? And the answer is this. Humanity's representative, Adam, ruined it all. It ruined it all. He listened to the lies of the enemy, the devil. He ate the fruit of the forbidden tree in disobedience to God. And so through the disobedience of Adam, everything was ruined. If you pour hazardous chemicals at the head of a mountain spring, then all the waters that flow down on that stream are polluted, aren't they? And Adam's ruin has been the ruin of mankind ever since. Our relationship with God is ruined because of that rebellion and disobedience. And every other relationship that we have, male and female, men with other men, men with the creation, is also polluted. And they were banished from the garden, separated from the tree of life. So death entered their experience. So death has been part of the experience of humanity ever since. This is what the Bible says. This is the reason that there is death. We live in this ruin and devastation of Adam's disobedience. We bear the curse of separation, of pain, of toil, of death. Whether that's the tragedies that take life or diseases in our bodies, it's all because of Adam's sin that brought this disaster on the whole of humanity. Now out there, people are desperately trying to seek to push away this day of death. People will, will buy potions that say they're anti-aging potions and rub it on their skin. People will take vitamins. People will join health clubs. People, well, thankfully, the, the doctors out there with uh, various medical researchers, we've been able to find some amazing solutions to some of the great diseases. But at the end of the day, the best that man can do is give us a bit more time In the end, all surgeons, all doctors fail. In the end, we all need a casket and a funeral director. We live in a world of, of, it's so brief, and yet within it, instead of ruling this world to God's glory and, and increasing love and service and beauty and truth and life, we live in a world of ruined people who use their position to hate, dominate, spoil, lie, and kill. 
Now, I know this is not the, the total story of man. There, we're capable of great and good things. I recognize that. But just open the Sunday newspapers today. You will see example after example of the depravity that we are capable of as human beings. And the Bible says this is all the result and evidence of Adam's ruin. I read this week that there are more female deaths from uh, the violence of men in the UK last year than the numbers of British soldiers killed in three years of conflict in Afghanistan. That's the nation we live in. That is evidence of our depravity. And that's why the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is so monumental in the history of the world. He has risen to reverse Adam's sin. Just as death came through one man, God has acted in human history by sending his son, Jesus Christ, as the new Adam to be the start of a new creation, a new humanity. Jesus, uh, if you read the gospel accounts, he lived this perfect life, and yet he chose to go to the cross to take the curse of dying on that cross. And his resurrection, that empty tomb, is shouting out to the world that the curse of man's depravity is not the only way to live. His resurrection means that he has overcome our depravity and is reversing Adam's terrible legacy. You see, the Bible says there are basically two destinies depending on which of these two men is your representative. There are those who are in Adam, who are ruined, cursed, dying, hellbound. And there are those who are in Christ, uh, renewed, blessed, living, and heaven-bound. Look back at verse 21 of 23 of chapter 15. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. Take another look at these verses, verses 21 to 23. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. See, because we all start in Adam, we all experience physical death. It's just as true of the Christian and the non-Christian. But for those who belong to Jesus Christ, they will be resurrected on the future day of his return to enjoy this new creation of the life that is to come. In the next letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That is what the resurrection is saying to us. The old order of Adam's humanity is passing. The new life of the new creation has broken in and is coming. And the Apostle Paul knew that that experience of entering to the new creation started at the moment that you put your faith in Christ. He looked back at his very religious life before he became a Christian and he recognizes that he was a very depraved person. Even in all his religiousness, he was depraved. Before he met Jesus, he wrote this, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. He describes himself as the worst of sinners. And yet he was shown mercy by God. He was transformed by the grace of the Lord Jesus. And this was to show the unlimited patience of the Christ who, uh, 
who, who saves him, meets him on Damascus Road, and forgives all his sins. And it's an encouragement to everyone else that if, if, if someone like Paul can get saved, then we can get saved. You know, we can see all the faults and problems of others quite easily, can't we? But in truth, very few have the insight to see the ugliness of their own sin and depravity. But if you've begun to see something of the awfulness of depravity in your own life, then here's something of great hope. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead to reverse Adam's ruin. And so there's hope that overcomes our depravity. See, for the Christian, there's, a, there's new life and power at work. His resurrection gives us new life uh, to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ, to become those who engage in the world, uh, to do it for God's glory, to be those who would increasingly be those who are marked by love, service, beauty, truth, and life. This is what the resurrection of Christ declares. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So the resurrection shouts to us today if we're in Christ. You're a new creation. You're ready for the life to come. You, you, you've been changed and transformed. This is your future. This is your destiny. And the third thing that the resurrection declares in these verses is that he is risen to reign. Look at verse 24. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, his resurrection is revealing to us that this is the second Adam. And he's come to fulfill what Adam failed to do. What was Adam supposed to do? Remember what he was supposed to do at the beginning of creation? He was supposed to rule, wasn't he? Rule over everything. God had purposed to put every enemy, everything under his feet. And yet he, he fell from that lofty purpose. And so Jesus Christ comes, risen from the dead. That declares him to be the true man who will fulfill this creation goal that he is the king of creation he is the one who um, all things will be put under his feet he came to bring in the kingdom of God read the gospel accounts you'll see his awesome authority uh, in his teaching in the way that he can uh, control disaster uh, the way that he has control over those who are demon possessed for those who are uh, even death itself as we thought about earlier you read about a hurricane storm where the disciples were, were crossing a lake and they thought they were going to die. And he merely speaks a word and creation responds to the king of creation and the winds and the waves cease. Well, the resurrection of Jesus declares to the world that the true king has come. And this king will return. And all evil, all Despots, all dominions, all authorities, all powers will be overthrown and destroyed. Paul was preaching to the elites in Athens in the first century, and he wasn't impressed by all their pagan statues, all their idols and altars. And he said this as he closed his speech to them 
in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Here's one of the mighty implications of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. There is a day coming when the king returns. There is a day of judgment coming. And, and it is going to be a great day in the sense that all that is rotten, all that is unjust, all that is wicked, all that is evil, all, that is, um, all the wicked tyrants, all those who abuse and destroy and kill will be removed from this world. And all that exercise destructive dominion will be destroyed and even death itself will be drained of all its power. It will be nullified. It will become removed. There is a day coming when death itself will die. Jesus Christ must reign and his kingdom of justice and goodness and righteousness will be complete at the end of the history of this world. And I know this is, uh, this is crazy talk in our culture today. And yet that empty tomb in the first century declares that it is true. The one who is raised is the returning king. And the question is this, are you looking forward to that day? Are, are, are you looking to welcome him because he is your king? He is your savior. You know that he paid for all your sin. You know that uh, the wickedness and depravity of your heart has been dealt with. And you're looking forward to that day. Or will you be one of those who fear that day because you love your depravity? You, you, you don't uh, accept Christ. You don't look forward to him returning as king. Your destiny will be determined by whether you are in Adam or in Christ. But that day will come, and all that is wicked and evil will be done away. And Jesus will complete this kingdom, and it says that he's going to hand that kingdom back to God, just as it was at the very beginning where God was all in all. God was everything to everyone. This doesn't imply that Jesus wasn't God. It is that he willingly subordinates himself to God the Father. Now I think that that truth must be of great comfort to Christians living in appalling conditions like those in North Korea, who in other states where they're experiencing injustice and cruelty for being Christians. The resurrection means that he must reign. There is a day of justice and salvation coming. Do you see how massive are the implications of the resurrection? He's the first fruits of all those who've fallen asleep. So he overcomes our despair. He's come to reverse the ruin of Adam's fall, which overcomes our depravity and gives us hope even in this life and great joy as we think of the new world that is to come. He is the one who is risen to reign. You know, every politician goes into politics to try and make 
uh, their country a better country. Everyone has these hopes that they're going to somehow turn the corner. They're going to create utopia. They're going to create the perfect benefit system. They're going to be able to reduce crime. They're going to be able to do. They're going to bring this wonderful kingdom under their their premiership, under their rule. Every every politician does that, and yet they all fail. Because our fundamental problem of our sin and our depravity is not dealt with by politics. It is only dealt with by coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and saying, please forgive me for my sins. Please forgive me for the way that I've not treated God as everything in my life. Thank you that you died on the cross to make me clean. Please change me so I can live with you in charge. It's only when people do that that the depravity of the hearts can be overturned, that people can move from being in Adam to being in Christ, so that we turn from being those who fear the day when the king comes back to remove all evil to being those who rejoice that the king is coming back because we will reign with him in this perfect kingdom. What's your response to the resurrection? The Bible says this, if you confess with your sin, your, your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that could be true of you today, this Easter 20, 2014. This could be the day, if you've not done so already, where you could change from being in Adam to being in Christ. And you'll be able to live and die in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ the resurrection of the dead that is yours because of his resurrection. That you can die looking forward to that everlasting kingdom. Now this is such an amazing thing. I want to give you the chance to respond to it today. And I want to just put a prayer up that you could use if you've not done so already, where you could respond to God with a prayer. It's a simple prayer. Sorry, thank you, please. Why don't you just have a look it over. See if you want to pray yourself. And as I pray, why don't you pray in the quietness of your own heart and mind. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, I'm sorry that I've sinned against you. And know that you've not been everything to me. Thank you for sending your son to die for my sins. And be my victorious, resurrected king. I confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And believe that you raised him from the dead. Please forgive me and change me to put Jesus first.